in that last hymn that we sang, uh, O Come All You Faithful, I don't know why this has never dawned on me before. Maybe we don't sing the second verse enough. God of God, light of light, eternal, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Very God, begotten, not created. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. From the Nicene Creed, ancient creed of the faith. John chapter 21. You ready? I'm going to read the whole chapter. John chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Simon, or Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And the one who had also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he should remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. 
So the saying spread among, abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he should remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is God's word. Pray with me again. Father, it is uh, our biggest desire right now that you would feed us, that you would give us what we need today, Lord, to strengthen our souls. Give us ears to hear, Lord. Help us to understand the things that you would say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stories and examples of lambs and sheep and shepherding are woven throughout the Bible from the beginning to the end. Right near the beginning in Genesis chapter 4, where we read of the occupation and the worship of Adam's son Abel, our attention in that passage is, is directed to the righteous sacrifice of the lamb and yet the murder of the shepherd. This is a sad introduction to the realities of sin, um, including the fact that the wages of sin is death. But it also hints, that story, Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel, it hints at the difficulties to come for sheep and for shepherds. So when Joseph is bringing his brothers and their families to Egypt to escape the famine in the land, he warned them that their identity as shepherds made them an abomination in the eyes of the Egyptians. Listen to Genesis chapter 46, verses 33 and 34. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. The greatest national leaders of Old Testament Israel Moses and David, the two greatest leaders of Israel, they both did hard time as actual shepherds before they served as prophet and king of Israel. And they saw their people, they saw the people that they were leading, and even they saw themselves as like sheep in need of a shepherd. So, for example, when God prevented Moses from entering into the promised land because of his sin, Moses made one request of the Lord. It's in Numbers chapter 27, verses 16 and 17. He says this to the Lord. He says, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation that is the people of Israel, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. And so the Lord chose Joshua to be the next shepherd of the sheep of Israel. We know that David believed the same things, right? Just read Psalm 23. But there's more. Because from the time of the Exodus, 
all the way throughout the Old Testament and even even really through the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, the time that we've been studying and reading in the gospel according to John. The Passover feast during all of that time was designed to cause God's people to focus on their need for the lamb to take their place in the face of God's judgment. Throughout their history, the people of Israel were tied together with lambs and sheep. They survived by keeping sheep, by eating sheep, by sacrificing sheep. And through all of this, they were taught to think of themselves as like sheep. This ought to be a humbling metaphor for us, but also one that really should give us great encouragement, especially when we consider both the words of John the Baptist when he proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and also the words of Jesus himself throughout John chapter 10. Let me just give you a couple of those words that Jesus said in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Again, later, he says again, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The reality is that the biblical use of um, sheep as a metaphor for God's people, it's actually not as sentimental as we might want to think that it is. The picture of the jolly shepherd with a sheep wrapped around his neck, right? You've seen that picture. Um, there is, that's a good picture, by the way, or at least representation of Jesus as a good shepherd. But not only is it not really that sem- sentimental, many of the The metaphors throughout the scriptures, many of the comparisons assume the weaknesses of the sheep, assumes their propensity towards self-destruction, towards wandering off, and it emphasizes the difficulty of shepherding. But thanks be to God, we have the good shepherd, as Jesus is clearly showing us all through the book of John, and no less so even in this final chapter. We have the good shepherd. The good shepherd has promised not to leave us alone, but rather to send another helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with us. And as we begin really to see in these, this chapter, really verses 15, 16, and 17 especially, um, we can see that he has given the church God's people, certain leaders who will do the work of shepherding in his place or rather under his command and and rule as as seen in in his word. And the Apostle Paul, in his epistle to the Ephesian church, he actually gives us the goal of these shepherds and therefore the goal of the sheep. So Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 to 16 says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, 
for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You gotta be quick with the metaphors because Paul switches in the middle there. He goes from sheep to a body, but he's still talking about the church the people of God. That's our goal. That passage describes a church made up of disciples of Jesus Christ. And let's be honest for just a moment. Actually, let's be honest this whole time, but especially for this moment, okay? Those are ideal disciples, right? There's a church made up of ideal disciples, an ideal that we will only fully realize when we reach heaven And yet, as we saw last week, we are called to be fishers of men. We are called to go and make disciples and keep on making disciples and so fulfill the Great Commission. We are called to spur one another on, to encourage one another, to pray for one another so that we can work towards that ideal. Not so that we might be saved. He has saved us already. But that we might be like Christ But if last week we were focused on the mission of the church, this week we're going to really focus on the ministers of the church, and particularly the restoration of Peter to the ministry as we could call him an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ. Again, this final chapter of the gospel according to John, as I said last week, it serves as an epilogue. So the last couple of verses of chapter 20 make a a fine and fitting conclusion to John's gospel. And then he puts a a PS on the end where he really zooms back in on the disciples. And this epilogue is about the mission and discipleship. It's about obedience and work. It's about revelation and feeding. This is about the grace of God and his steadfast love. And so, as I said, we're really going to zero in on verses, really verses 15 to 19 this morning. But in reality, we are going to spend most of our time on verses 15, 16, and 17, where John pays careful attention to an interaction between Jesus and Simon Peter. And as this chapter unfolds, it's hard not to see Peter's desire for reconciliation with Christ, right? That's why I read the whole chapter for us to see here this morning. It's hard not to see his desire to be with Jesus, to be right again with Jesus, especially when he he left everything behind, jumped into the water and swam about the length of a football field just to be with him. And remember, this this is after Peter has already left his nets and the fish and the boat behind three years earlier in order to follow Jesus, in order to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Peter's greatest desire is to be with Jesus, to be reconciled to him. This is part of what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ such good news. Sinners can not only be forgiven, 
but they can even be restored. Sinners can not only be forgiven, but they can even be restored. This is one of the aspects of the implications of the gospel that the devil likes to counter with his deceptions and lies. Now, I want to be careful. Maybe it's the devil. Maybe it's our own pessimism, the way that we think, our sinful minds. But we are often trapped by deceptions and lies, aren't we? Even the devil can reluctantly admit that Christians can be forgiven our sins. We can be delivered from final judgment. But when it comes to sanctification... When it comes to acts of service and and growth in Christ-likeness, when it comes to living joyfully as children of God, the lie that Satan loves to tell us is that our sin has disqualified us forever. The lie that we like to believe is that that's not going to work for you. You're never going to be good enough. But it's a lie. Christians who fall into sin or let themselves fall into sin might as well continue sinning, the lie goes. Or at least we should accept the fact that our failure has doomed us to a life of Christian shame and depression. But there's an antidote for this. And the antidote is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's good news because we've been reconciled to God. We've been given a ministry of reconciliation. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ died to save sinners, that's not just for somebody who's about to become a Christian. The gospel for Jesus Christ is for all of us. And we need to preach it to ourselves often because we believe lies really easily. And we can see the antidote, we can see this antidote, the gospel in today's passage. The antidote for Satan's lies is always the truth. It's always God's word. As I have said before, and others have as well, Peter's sin of denying Christ, if you think about it, Peter's sin of denying Christ may have even been worse than Judas's sin of betrayal. I'm not talking about the results. Clearly, the results are diametrically different. But the sin itself. But the difference between Judas and Peter is this. Let me read you the results. So Judas first. Matthew 27, verses 3 to 5, talks about the results of Judas's sin. It says, Then Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind. And brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. If you just read the first part of that, you would think this looks like repentance. First of all, he changed his mind. He went in the other direction. He admitted, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, but he did not bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He went and committed suicide. But it gets even worse than that because Jesus had said even earlier, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. But the results for Peter were very different. 
Just look up at verses 7 and 8 here of this same chapter, 21. Verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. He threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, about a hundred yards off. Judas ran from Christ as far as he could. He wanted to be sure that he never saw Jesus again. And he ended up dead by his own hand. But Peter ran, or in this case, swam, to Christ. He went to Christ, and Christ fed him. But as we saw last week, he fed him more than just breakfast. In fact, what we see here in these next verses, following the breakfast, what we see is Jesus pouring out his grace on Peter. Grace upon grace. But we also need to see that for reconciliation and restoration to happen, there must also be repentance. And so repentance is required. Look again at verses, let me read 15, 16, and 17 again. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. In order to fully understand this text and this exchange between Peter and Jesus, we need to keep in mind that just a short time ago, three times, Peter had denied any connection to Jesus. And he did so while he was in the presence of the enemy. But who is Peter with now? Now Peter is in the presence of his friends and he affirms his love for his Savior. He affirms his love for Christ three times. So again, let's consider the the scene here. Put yourself in, in Peter's shoes. Just a few minutes ago, when they were still on the boat, and it finally dawned on John, and he said, it is the Lord, Peter dressed himself and dove into the water. So, practically speaking, he's probably still wet, right? He, he swam 100 yards, he was fully immersed in the sea, swam to the shore, he sat down and had some breakfast. He's probably still wet, um, When you jump into a lake fully clothed, it takes a while for your clothes to dry, doesn't it? Look at verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. So it's pretty likely that Peter has been warming himself by the fire while he eats. But John has included an important detail here. It's a charcoal fire. I wonder if we've heard that before. This is not the first time that Peter had warmed himself by a charcoal fire. Flip back a couple of pages to chapter 18. I want to remind you of this passage. Uh, John 18, verse 15 says this. This is as Jesus is arrested. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. 
Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Jump down to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, the relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked him, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. And at that moment, the moment of his third denial there, Luke, in his account, records one other detail. Just listen to this. It's from Luke 22, verse 60. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. That's his third denial. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This unfaithful fisherman wept. But now, as Jesus takes the place of the temple guards around the fire... He looks at Peter once again and he questions him three more times. But this time the questions are much more pointed. See, before Peter was asked, are you one of his disciples? But now it's, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? How should we understand that question? How should we understand Jesus' questions? Well, the first thing that I want you to see there is that he calls him Simon, son of John, each time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John. Simon, son of John. Jesus had stopped calling him this. In fact, the last time Jesus used the name, his given name, Simon, was when he had declared this. Blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Simon, bar Jonah, Simon, son of John, that was his old life name. That, that was his pre-blessing name. It was his worldly name. But Jesus had given him a whole new identity. He'd given him a Christian name, if you will. But now he's reminding him, gently, that he has fallen back into his old life. And he needed to repent so that he can be reconciled and restored. Simon Barjona, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Okay, so now that we understand this, we need to understand the question itself. Do you love me? I need to get just a little bit technical for just a second. So bear with me. 
If you've been around churches for any length of time, it's possible that you've heard it taught, this is true, in John's writing, that Jesus uses a different word for love than Peter does. So Jesus uses the word in Greek, it's agape, which is a higher love, a divine love. And Peter responds with a different word, it's phileo, which is a human or brotherly love, Philadelphia, right, city of brotherly love. And therefore, because there are two words there, some believe that we should draw certain conclusions from that. Namely, that Peter is not prepared to love Jesus as Jesus was asking him to, in the way that Jesus was asking him to. But I don't think that's right. And the problem with that theory is is twofold. First, they were almost certainly speaking Aramaic, not Greek. And John was writing in Greek, so he's translating this into Greek for his audience when he wrote this years later. And then connected with that, it is the second reason, which is that John often uses these two different words for love interchangeably. So for example, in one place, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus agaped, and in another place, he's the disciple whom Jesus phileoed. It means the same thing. And then he also uses the words, even in this passage, for feed and tend and um, feed and tend and sheep and lambs, he uses those seemingly interchangeably as well. Although I'm going to make a slight distinction in a moment between feeding and tending. But they still can't be separated. And I think that's the point that John here is making. I think it's the point is that they can't be separated. This love is all-encompassing. It's, it's love. It's agape and phileo. It's, it's a higher divine love and a brotherly love. But look at the first time he asks this question in verse 15. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Don't forget, this scene is closely connected to Peter's denial. So listen to what Jesus had said in Matthew 26 when he foretold Peter's denial, his sin. Jesus said to them, that is the disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Now, here in Galilee, just as he had said that they would be, Jesus says to him, Simon, do you still think that you love me more than these? Do you still think that you love me more than these other disciples do? Now, some believe that he's talking about the fish, as in, do you think that you love me more than you love your former life? And there's something to that. But I don't think Peter is completely returned to his former life. I think he's doing what he knows. He's fishing because he's hungry, but he's there. He's in Galilee just as Jesus told him to be, as are the others. They are there to meet the risen Jesus Christ. They've already seen him twice, and so they know that Jesus has risen. He's already charged them. He said, I'm sending you just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So they know that everything has changed. And with the first two answers that Peter gives, 
Both, both times he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And in that statement, we, we really don't get much of a, a hint of the state of Peter's soul and mind. But the third time that he answers, the third time he's grieved and he acknowledges Jesus' omniscience. Look at verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. This grief in Peter's heart right there, this grief is a necessary part of the Lord's work in bringing Peter to the point of genuine repentance in order to bring about true restoration. That's, that's why he's asking him this over and over. He wants Peter to feel that grief, acknowledge that grief. He wants him to acknowledge his failure. Jesus is using Peter to demonstrate for us that only a genuinely repentant believer can take comfort in the Lord's true knowledge of our hearts. Have you ever thought about that? Can you, can you take comfort in the fact that God knows absolutely everything about you? Even the secret hidden things? The private thoughts that no one else knows and that you don't even want to admit in your own head? Can you take comfort in the fact that God knows absolutely everything about you? Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, but listen very carefully. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Repentant believers... Christians who have trusted in Christ for salvation and are not trying to either flaunt their sin nor hide their sin, they are the only ones who can take genuine comfort in the knowledge, God's knowledge of all things, even the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And that knowledge, Lord, you know everything. That knowledge should drive us to repentance, not to despair. That should drive us to repentance, not to despair, not to shame, but to joy in repentance. Later in Hebrews, we read this instruction and, and this example, really. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 to 17. It says, the preacher of Hebrews says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. That's exactly what happened to Judas. Except instead of just merely crying, he took his own life. He sought no chance to repent. 
This is a call for the church to encourage and admonish one another to live lives of repentance, which is the prerequisite to reconciliation and restoration. That's what we can see here in how Jesus deals with Peter. I want to make a distinction, and I hope that you understand this. What's my favorite Bible verse? What's been the Bible verse that I've been talking about all year long? Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm talking about Christians and those secret hidden sins. We're saved. Nothing can change that. There is therefore now no condemnation. But do you know that you don't have to live in that shame of that secret hidden sin because God knows and he's calling for us to repent of that. That's what we can see here in how Jesus deals with Peter. This is why I wanted to be clear about this because Jesus has already forgiven Peter. He's not withholding grace and mercy In fact, he's using this to pour out his grace and mercy on him. Jesus is not holding a grudge when he says to him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He's asking him these questions for for Peter's benefit. See, if Jesus were withholding forgiveness, if Jesus were somehow condemning him, then he he would not have said to him back on that first Lord's Day, back on that second Lord's Day, earlier in chapter 20, Peace be with you. He would not, Jesus would not have been able to say that to Peter. But Peter was there. Peter heard those words. That promise was true of Peter. Jesus has already prayed for them. He has specifically prayed for Peter, even during this time of testing and denial. In Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, it says that Jesus says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, interceded on your behalf that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is what Jesus is setting Peter up for, up to do right now in these verses. So so look carefully at his threefold response to Peter's affirmation of love. Look at how Jesus responds when when Peter says, you know I love you. He says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. Simply put, Jesus is restoring Peter to his calling as an under-shepherd over the flock of God. And this exchange between these two is a foreshadow, not not only of what Peter's ministry will be through time, and you can read about it in the early chapters, especially of the book of Acts. You can read about it in Peter's two letters. He will be a, uh, he calls himself a fellow elder. But this is also a foreshadow of every shepherd or under-shepherd whom God gives to his church, as Ephesians says. And in this, Jesus states three important truths that every every sheep and every shepherd needs to know and remember. Three important truths about the ministry and about the church. And the first is this. The flock belongs to Christ. The sheep belongs to Christ. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Feed my sheep. 
This fits what he said back in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. The Apostle Paul will explain it even further a little bit later to the, uh, to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, when he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That's what he means then when he writes to the Corinthians, and he actually says something like this twice in the same letter. He says, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. And so whether or not there's a difference between the sheep and the lambs in Jesus' instructions here, they are his, right? You are not your own, you were bought with a price, and the price was Jesus' own blood. Lambs, who are young and weak and immature, as well as sheep, who are not the brightest animals, are prone to wander. The flock, lambs and sheep, are in need of tending. They're in need of proper feeding and leading, and the flock belongs to Jesus Christ, who is the chief shepherd. And Peter is called to take this responsibility seriously. I am so sick and tired of celebrity pastors who treat the church as an avenue to develop their own brand. That's probably all I should say about that. The second important truth that we can see here, not only are they Jesus' sheep, but both the sheep and the shepherd need to know and remember This is a helpful description of the nature of pastoral, of shepherding work. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Feed my sheep. Feed. Tend. Feed. Again, I I said this earlier, but these things can't be separated. John seems to use them interchangeably, but there are some kind of distinctions, slight distinctions. So listen to what Peter himself will say later when he writes his first letter about feeding. He will say, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Feeding. And then the preacher of Hebrews, he will encourage us not to drink only milk, but also to move into solid food, the depth of theology that strengthens our souls. Because as he says, the author of Hebrews says, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This is a call for all of us to be theologians, to grow and study the deep and and hard-to-understand truths of scriptures. And this is also a call for the shepherds to feed the sheep, his sheep, solid food. And here's where I'm going to make just a little bit of a distinction. Tending is the shepherd, the shepherding, and leading. uh, Tending is the shepherding and leading aspects of caring for Christ's sheep, right? And it's what Peter will come to understand when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, 
as well as the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. But there's a few more like that in Scripture. Hebrews goes on to say, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then he will say, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. He says to Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that, you may, that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers, he says. Feed Tend, feed. These things are inseparable. But at the same time, feeding, teaching and preaching God's word is first and last. Feed, tend, feed. Feed, tend, feed. Richard Phillips, in his commentary, puts it like this. He says, to be called by Christ to the pastoral office is therefore to be gifted and prepared to teach and preach the scriptures with fidelity and power. Called to the work, a faithful pastor must devote a significant portion of his working time to the prayerful preparation of his teaching so as to most wholesomely feed the beloved sheep whom belong to Christ. And I just wanna say thank you. This church is by and large very good at this, at giving me time to study and also by paying careful attention to the things that you're being fed. I just want to say thank you for that. I want to encourage you that you are doing well in these matters. The third important truth that we need to see here is that the greatest of these is love. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Jesus asks. Love for the Savior and therefore for his flock, for his sheep and lambs, is essential. It's essential for any who would, who would be called to tend and feed and, and tend, uh, feed and tend and feed God's sheep, Christ's sheep. Intellectual curiosity Theological curiosity, or what I call nerdiness, is not enough. I I know I'm wearing a bow tie when I said that. But theological nerdiness is not enough. It's not even a requirement. A desire to work among books and dead theologians is not enough. It's not it. And certainly not a thirst for power, a thirst for authority, or a desire to be up front behind a pulpit. These things do not a shepherd make but rather a love for Jesus Christ. Jesus asks, do you love me? 
Do you love me enough to be killed? That's what's happening in verse 18. I don't think they understood this until later, what he was saying there. That's what John goes in in verse 19 and explains it very explicitly. Do you love me enough to be killed? When Peter was younger, he wrapped his cloak around him, for that matter, just a few minutes ago on the boat. He wrapped his cloak around him. He dressed himself, but one day he will be restrained. One day he will be brought to his own execution. Peter's love for his Savior would burn so brightly that he truly would be willing to die for him. Do you remember what he said when Jesus predicted that Tonight, you're going to deny me three times? He said, I would die for you. Jesus is saying here in verse 18, yeah, you're going to. Now you're ready to say that. And then he says, and he finishes with one simple thought. Really, until then, until you die for me, follow me. Right there at the end of verse 19, and after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. It's in the present tense. In other words, it means keep following me. Remain steadfast in following me. So I'll finish with this quote. It's from um, R. Kent Hughes, who's written a ton of books, and he was the pastor of a church in Wheaton, Illinois. He said, The abiding principle is that before all things, even service to him, We must love him with all our hearts. That's the highest priority in life. This is the first question for every theologian. It is the essential question for the pastor. It is the supreme question for every missionary. It is the number one question for every one of us who wants to please God. Loving God is the highest priority of our lives. As Paul will say to the Ephesians, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Follow me. Pray with me. Father, help us to remember that the greatest of these is love. Help us to be continually asking ourselves, not because we're trying to earn salvation. You have done that for us. Lord, I pray that we would rest in the finished work of Christ, that we would rest in the truth that Jesus has already purchased us, that for those who who are called according to his purpose, those who have trusted in Christ for salvation are secure for an eternity, that there is therefore now no condemnation, But Lord, I pray that we would be continually repenting of our sins and running to Christ because of our love for him. Because he has first loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And so Father, as we come to the table to remember that, to proclaim Jesus' death until he comes, Father, it is our prayer that as you continue to feed us with Jesus' body and blood that we would be reminded that we are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. To God be the glory. 
We pray in Jesus' name, amen.